Would you please turn, if you have a Bible with you, to the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to read in two passages, first Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, <clears throat> and verse 13, the Lord Jesus is the speaker, he's explaining to his disciples the style of preaching that he has adopted and in verse 13, he says, therefore, speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, by hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their hearts, and should be converted, and I should heal them. So you will note that the Lord Jesus adopted the method of using parables, easily understood stories, because as he said, people were generally insensitive to eternal things, and he was presenting truth to them in a way that they could grasp. Now just one more reading, please, in chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3. Verse 1 for the context, please. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. I'd like to speak about conversion tonight. Uh, we have read about it in these two passages, and I can assure you it is a much misunderstood word and topic. Allow me, first of all, then, to try to define it from a biblical point of view. And what I would like to do is tell you um, three important facts about conversion, two important results of conversion, and one important reason for it. Conversion generally, and it's got a bad rap in modern days, conversion generally is thought of as a person changing religion. Often, I don't want to be critical, but often it is viewed as being a meaningless change of religion, where somebody wants to marry somebody of a different faith. He may be Protestant, she may be Catholic, so he converts to Catholicism or whatever the other religion may be. And it is, of course, so that they can be married together in the church that one of them belongs to and that they can have a service in the building that would be used. But that is not how the Bible uses the word conversion. So here are three important facts about conversion. The first is this, that from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we learn that conversion means turning from something and turning to someone. That someone is God, that something is sin. And so Paul wrote to the Thessalonian Christians, the people who had heard the gospel, and he said, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven. So conversion has nothing to do with what religion you belong to. Conversion is a person turning from his or her sins and turning to God. I'm so thankful to tell you that on July the 10th, 1966, I was converted. I turned from my sins and I turned to God by faith in Christ. I didn't change religions. I didn't start to go to a different church, but my life was changed. I was converted. 
Fact number two. From Matthew 13, we learn why some people are converted and why others are not. And I think that this is incredibly insightful and cogent because the Lord Jesus speaks about some people who hear God's truth. They see that it is what God says and they believe what God says. At the same time, he speaks about some who miss salvation and he describes this about their hearts being callous, uh, their ears being deaf, their eyes being closed. So nothing awakens them. Nothing seems to penetrate the, the cloud. They've turned off the ignition of their thinking, whatever it may be, whether it's prejudice, whether it's a, a preference for sin, whatever the case may be, the truth does not seem to reach their hearts. It's as if they are spiritually asleep. A number of years ago, long before Easy Pass or electronic toll collection, I had to drive over the Golden State Bridge. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's a beautiful sight. Thousands of people will plan their vacation just around getting a shot of the Golden Gate Bridge. I pulled up. Now, this was very early in the morning. I had to travel early. So I will give her this concession. It was early. But I pulled up to the toll booth. And the toll collector was sound asleep. Sound asleep. If I were a dishonest person, I could just simply have quietly moved away. Uh, there was no, no arm down, no gate was down. She was sound asleep. So I had to waken her. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me? Excuse me. She bolted to and collected my money. But, you know, I thought afterward, that's one of the most beautiful spots in the United States. It is one of the most photographed spots in our country. As I said, there are people who will come thousands of miles. And we'll wait for the right moment when the sun is shining on that bridge and they're right at the right angle and they will get that gorgeous shot of the Golden Gate Bridge. But you see, she had become so accustomed to it. She would go there every morning. How many times can you look at the Golden Gate Bridge and be awed? And so she was, in a sense, insensitive to what to other people was absolutely phenomenal. And so the Lord Jesus is pointing out that it is possible. It is possible to become inured, to become insensitive, to not respond to this wonderful message that has come from God to us, that God has sent his son because of his love for men and women. He has sent his son to provide the atonement by the shedding of his blood and by his death at Calvary. So in Matthew 13, we learn why some are converted, why some are not. And I certainly hope you will be among those whose eyes are open, whose ears are open, whose heart is listening, and that you will take in God's truth. Where we read in Matthew 18, we learn that rather than it's being a complex and confusing thing, conversion is the essence of simplicity. Being converted involves, the Lord Jesus said, becoming like a little child. The Lord Jesus is not calling on us to become childish, but to be childlike. Being childlike involves having an open mind. Your mind open? It involves having an unbiased attitude. It involves having a willingness to accept truth, even when that truth hurts, even when that truth cuts across the grain of what I prefer. I would have to tell you that even though I was a teenager, that July night in 1966 was the darkest night in my life. Because what I was hearing from the Bible was shattering, shattering everything I hoped for, everything I imagined. It was telling me that as a sinner before God, I was already condemned, I was already guilty, that I needed salvation, that I needed to be delivered. The easier thing 
would simply have been to shut that out. I'm so glad that I didn't do that, that that God made me face that truth that night because the gospel presents facts about our condition and about the provision that God has made in the giving of his son at Calvary. And so the Lord Jesus says to be converted, a person must become like a little child in order to be able to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there are two important results of conversion. First of all, it results in a change of direction, and then it results in a change of destiny. The Lord Jesus, the Bible, pictures us as traveling away from God. The ancient prophet Ezekiel described the need for people to turn. And you remember his stentorian words ringing out, turn ye, turn ye, for why will ye die? Job in the Old Testament, he pictured us as being on a journey down to the pit and about needing to be delivered from going to the pit and about a ransom that would be paid that would enable God to deliver us from going into the pit. So that picture of our traveling in the wrong direction, traveling away from God, when a person turns to God, his direction changes. Or in New Testament language, he becomes reconciled to God through the death of the Lord Jesus. And of course, the Savior reminded us that there is a difference of destiny, that a person, instead of traveling down to the pit, as Job described it, instead of a person traveling to eternal judgment, as Ezekiel described it, instead of traveling to destruction, as the Lord Jesus described it, that person is now traveling to heaven. Or as the Bible says, that person is saved for eternity. So would you allow me to ask you, if it's absolutely essential that you become converted to God, has there been a moment when you were converted to God? Because the one important reason I want to give you as to why conversion is essential is that Christ said it. I have to admit to you, I couldn't believe it when my uh, dear friend, uh, Brother David, talked the other night about parents saying, um, because I said so. That used to irk me greatly. I, I, I remember when my first child was born, I remember making a solemn oath to myself. I will never say that. I hated it so much. I will never say that to my child. The reminder of that came back the first time I said to him, because I said so. And I realized I'd just broken my promise. And I tried to never do that again. When a parent says that because I said so, she or he is establishing authority. Look, I'm the boss here. You'll do what I say, because I'm the father, I'm the mother. You'll do what I say. The trouble is, we, fathers, mothers, all of us, are fallible. I could be making a mistake in what I'm insisting that my child do. But when you come to God, you're coming to an infallible source. He says, except the person is converted He cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. If you ever intend to be in God's kingdom, you're going to have to be converted. This is is tantamount to what the Lord Jesus said to the Jewish rabbi Nicodemus in John chapter 3. When quoting from Ezekiel, he reminded Nicodemus that he needed a new birth. And he said, you must be born again. Except the person be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. This is the equivalent of what the apostles preached in the streets of Jerusalem when they said, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So that language, which to us sounds like the language of insistence, is what God says. And I would suggest to you that the highest wisdom you could practice would be to listen to what God says and chart your course accordingly. 
If he says I need to be born again to get to heaven, then I need to be born again. If he says I need to be converted to get to heaven, then I need to be converted. If he says that I have to be saved in order to get to heaven, then no matter what my church tells me or the majority thinks or other people say, I'm going to need to be saved. I'm going to need to be born again. I'm going to need to be converted. Have you a moment in your life somewhere in this world where you turn from your sins and you turn to God? A moment when you were converted. What I would like to do in the few minutes remaining to me, I'd like that to come alive. I would like to show you conversion displayed in the life of a man. And I want to go to the uh, Jewish scholar Saul of Tarsus. Because in his conversion, you will see elements that are in some measure true of anyone's conversion. First of all, there was the painful awakening or awareness that was creeping into his mind. And that had to do with this, first of all, the conversion of friends and family. There were people who were in his family who had become saved. And this began to trouble Saul of Tarsus very greatly because he felt that he was absolutely right in his opposition to Christianity and to the gospel and to the Lord Jesus. But yet he heard about relatives who were saved. Then there was the courage of his enemies, his foes. He stood by, he was holding the garments of the men who had taken their outer tunics off so that they could stone a man named Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Years later, he would, he would remind God in his prayer, he would say, when, when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I was standing there. He never forgot that. And he remembered how they died. Now, you must understand that the fact that somebody will die for a cause does not make the cause right. There's all kinds of martyrs blowing themselves up and trying to blow up as many other people as they can. Just because a person will die for a cause does not make the cause correct or true. But people generally do not die for a cause that they know is not true. And these disciples were convinced that they had seen the risen Christ, that if they were to die, they would go to be with him, that in the language of the Bible, they would be absent from their bodies, but they would be at home. They would be in the presence of God. And so they face death without the fear that normally marks us. Jim Whitaker was sitting on seat 19F and Captain Sullenberg landed it onto the Hudson. Let me give you his words. Adrenaline and fear went into overdrive. People were crying, yelling, praying, holding hands. Oh my God, he said, the takeaway memory for me is looking at people near me and seeing that visceral reaction and genuine fear for one's life in their eyes. That's the normal thing. That's the natural thing. That's what most of us would feel if we were on a plane and it was going to be making an emergency landing. What Saul of Tarsus was seeing was people going to their deaths, <laughs> praying for the people who were killing them. People going to their deaths, confident that on the other side, of however painful that experience was, they would be in heaven. And so, first of all, there was the conversion of friends and family. Then there was the courage of his enemies as they were dying. And then there was the consciousness that he had sinned against God. He doesn't really tell us what the sin was, but he does bring up in Romans chapter 7, one of the commandments, thou shalt not covet. And it could be that what he coveted was the place of respect and honor that his teacher, his rabbi had, whom he spoke so highly of. Whatever it was, Paul was aware, Saul was aware that he had sinned against God, that there was a mighty power at work in his heart and life 
that nothing he had done or said or prayed or paid or suffered could remove. And that deeply disturbed him because he was an honest thinker. And he thought to himself, if I am conscious of my sins, what must God see when he looks at my heart? And how can I stand in the presence of God? Jeremiah was the prophet who said that the human heart is deceitful above everything and it is incurably wicked. And so there was that, first of all, this this awakening, if you will, this painful reality of these things. But then there was a personal appropriation where he took some truth to himself. I'm using his own words. He said to the people who lived in the city of Corinth, I preach to you what I took to myself. Here is what he took to himself. He had found the divine remedy for sin. And that's what he preached. Christ died for our sins. That Christ had faced the penalty for our failures and sins at Calvary. That as we were hearing the other night, our sins were charged to him as though they were his own. And since sins, wages, the Bible says means death, he died. He was buried. He rose again the third day. He understood that dynamic resurrection and what it meant, something that had been prophesied thousands of years before, and that happened. The immediate results of that resurrection were that Roman soldiers fled, that a a 2,000-pound stone was rolled aside like a styrofoam cup on a windy highway, and that people that came in, the terrified disciples, looked in and saw the tomb empty and the grave clothes lying as if there had been a body in them, but flat, the body was gone. And in just a few short days, terrified, frightened, Jewish disciples cowering in an upper room became leonine and courageous and stood in the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming, he's alive. Hundreds of us have seen him alive. Go check his tomb. It is empty. And whether Muslim, Jewish, or Christian, no one has ever denied that the tomb was empty. Where is he? 1 Corinthians 15 points out is that 516 people saw the Lord Jesus alive after he was dead. I sat down and figured it out once. Somebody tells me that I copied this from somebody, but I came up with a different figure. Um, If you spent 15 minutes, if you you brought each of the witnesses in one by one and you cross-examined them about what they saw about the resurrection of Christ and you devoted 15 minutes to each one of the persons, and you started at 8 o'clock on Monday, you would not be finished examining the evidence until Saturday afternoon. In many different places, many different people, from many different walks of life, even some who did not believe in Christ, saw him alive. And when people want to know, well, how would I ever find, how would I ever discover the right religion in the world. Does this simplify matters? There's only one person who ever died and raised himself from the dead. There's only one sepulcher that's empty because a man raised himself from the dead. Nobody else has ever done that. And that man, whom many, many people on that Judean hillside watched ascending up into the heavens, that man is God's eternal son. And Paul just took that to himself. Of course, you'll understand it was the shattering of everything he had ever thought, but he had a dependable record to believe. He he points out twice, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, that God did exactly what he said he would do. 
that Christ did exactly what he would say he, he, he said he would do. And that tonight, we're not asking you to trust church dogma. We're not, we're not asking you to join a secret religion. We're not telling you that there's some kind of, of secret knowledge into which you can come. There is a message that is for the whole world. And that message is that God sent his son to be the savior of sinners and that you can have eternal life and be sure of a home in heaven if you will personally trust Christ. I want to stop there, but I, I do want to leave with you the importance of the Savior's words. Let me just read them again to you, please. Because he said, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, conversion is absolutely essential. The philosopher William James said that conversion was discharging lesions of the occipital cortex. That's all it is in people's minds. Conversion, discharging lesions of the occipital cortex in a human brain. Charles Wesley described conversion this way. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The man who owns the key to heaven says you need to be converted. I hope you'll look past the fallibility of the speaker or speakers, that you'll look past our stumbling efforts to tell you what the Bible says, and that you will understand that it is God who says that you need to be converted. Thanks, everyone, for coming out tonight. Um, I'd like to read just a couple of verses in your New Testament found in uh, the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're going to read a couple of verses here. Very well known um, for those who are given to memorizing parts of uh, the Old or New Testament. Uh, these are some of the, the first verses that were memorized. So Romans chapter 3. Uh, and we will read a couple of verses here in Romans 3. Romans 3, maybe we'll read just the last phrase here in verse 22. 22, or just if you, if you, if you find verse 23, if you just go back to the last um, four words of the previous verse, they go with verse 23, and so I'd like to read them. It says here, Romans 3, just the end of verse 22, says, There is no difference... For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then verse 24 has some of the, the greatest terms uh, in the Bible all put together here. And so the Apostle Paul, he says, following on from verse 22, he says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we're just going to read those one more time. There is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So um, we know that God will add a blessing to the reading of his word. Tonight I'd like to speak on three things. Um, it's always good to good give an outline of sorts if you can. I want to speak on a, a similarity, a standard, and a savior. A similarity, 
Often in life, it's hard to know when you want to fit in and when you'd like to stick out. It's a, it's a tricky balance. I, you know, you, 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 you think you know when it's the right time to, you know, uh, to, to all of a sudden exalt yourself. And you say, no, that was not the right time. I can remember, uh, almost, uh, uh, with, with great, actually preciseness, uh, senior year in high school. And I remember in one week on a Monday, I had to write a 500-word essay to separate myself from about 9,000 other candidates who wanted to go to Manhattan College up in the Bronx. And I had to write 500 words to say I was better than those guys. And on the Tuesday night, I played uh, basketball. I never really played. I was just on the team. But I remember my parents would show up late sometimes to the game, and everybody who was playing was just in their jersey and when they sat on the bench, they would still be in a jersey. So I would get there, and I never played, but I would take off the warm-up so that I looked like the guys on the floor. I wanted to look similar so that they would look and go, oh, look, David played. But he didn't play the rest of the game. We must have missed it, you know? So I was just I was looking for some similarity there. You think? And one week, there I am trying to separate myself from everyone, and then just in the next breath trying to look like everyone else because I just wanted to figure out where the benefit was. If I could figure out the benefit, I would know – Do I want to be different? Do I want to rise above the mold? Or do I want to fit in the mold as everyone else? You know, I mean, we look at that too. When we go to a wedding, you'd say, if it's not yours, pick a dull color. If it is yours, stand out, right? It's your day. And so all of life is is just deciphering to fit in or to stick out. And we come to this, this verse, and the Apostle Paul uniquely so tells us, God, God already says there's no difference. No difference. You look at the country that we live in, 330 million Americans. I, I read an article years ago, and it said, we call it one nation under God. But there are actually people who think there's so many different nations within this country. Uh, there's the far west. There's the midlands. There's the deep south. In fact, they called where we live Yankeedom. I don't know how the Mets feel about them, but they called it Yankeedom. And I said, you know, we, we think we're united, but no, nah, people think it's, it's so different, so broken apart. 330 million people in this world, what, something like 195 countries. And you'd say so many differences, so many ethnic differences, cultural, food differences, even ways of thought. They're all, they're all molded by, it seems, where we were brought up. And yet God says there's only one human race. In fact, someone has actually put that on a billboard on New Jersey Turnpike, of all places. One race, the human race. One race, the human race. When it comes to economic status, I can take you down a road here, and within two miles, I can drive you by people who make $3 million a year, to people who make $300,000 a year, to people who make $30,000 a year, all on the same road, all just going a couple miles in distance, and you'd say, such difference. And yet they all use the same roads. Their kids probably go to the same schools and they probably go to the same Burger King. And you'd say such difference, such difference in economic, uh, uh, well, how well off they are. And yet it just whittles down religious differences. On the way here today, I passed a mosque. I passed a temple. I passed a chapel. I passed a mega church. I, I, you say so many differences, Dave. God says there's no difference. All have sinned. You say, no, there's got to be difference. There's got to be difference. You say to, to take that. And he says, he says, all have sinned. And he, if you look at the word, it just means this, 
They've missed the mark. They've missed the mark. I, I think often in life, um, in, in any one of those games where, where the eye-hand coordination has to line up, you'd say it's, it's, uh, it, it becomes as you're, as you're, as you're, as you're, as you're engaged in this, in this competition to say know where I'm aiming at. I, I read about a year ago, it was a Canadian, a Canadian of all people, a Canadian marksman who hit, hit a target two miles away with his rifle. You'd say, did he know what he was firing at? He better have if he hit it two miles away. You'd say, he must have, he must have just, you'd say, two miles away. You'd say, I, I can barely get two miles in my vehicle without my GPS. Here's a guy who hit, hit his target two miles away. And you'd said, he had to see the mark. Had to know what he was aiming at. It's not blind luck. You'd say, heaven, no one's calculated the distance. I don't know how far it is. You say, we're all aiming at heaven. No one denies that. There's not, I, you, I, people use terminology. Maybe we don't use it enough. Religions or faiths or devotions or things like that. No one's not aiming there. But what are you aiming at? What, what's, what's the standard? What's the mark? We read here, no difference. All have sinned. And, and if the mark, if the mark is devotion, who's measuring it? If the mark is uh, dollars, is it American dollars? Is it pesos? Because those are 20 for one American dollars. Is it bolivars in Venezuela? Because those are 120,000 for one dollar. What is the measure? What's the measure of, of the money that we have to give? What's the measure of, uh, of, of the amount of steps we have to take? What's the, I, I want to know if, if heaven is attainable and I, and I, I want to hit the mark, the standard, what is it? What's the standard of getting there? Because Paul says here, he says, there's no difference in us. As much as we would like to push one guy up and another guy, and, and if I come up here tonight in different clothing, you'd say, oh, he must be better than the other guys, you know, and, 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 and maybe someone here, you'd judge them by their vehicle in the parking lot. But, but God looks down and he says, everyone comes into the world and they leave the world. He says, and when you leave this place, you better not come in the way you entered. Because everyone enters Bible says, the Psalms say in the Old Testament, I was shaped in iniquity. I was a sinner from the day I entered this place. And, and, and to think that when I exit, when I leave this life, I will not take any of my achievements that have separated us. I will, I will take none of my distinctions. It will not matter if I didn't get gray and I beat you out some hair as far as hair color, it will not matter the vehicle I drive. It will not matter if my 401k is double yours. When we leave this life, we leave this life with nothing that we have acquired in this life. When it comes to material things, religious things, when it comes to all these things, the Bible says there's no difference. No difference. And you'd say we have missed the mark from day one. So when you look at the similarities, you'd say, what is the standard? What is the standard? The verse says here, there is no difference. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's a hard word to describe glory. I think uh, all of us sometimes have that uh, difficulty in life. If you said to me, uh, you know, describe, uh, describe a basketball, I could, I could show you with my hands. I could say it's about that round. Uh, I could say it's, it has like little dimples on it. 
sometimes it has inscriptions on the front, and when you bounce it, it, it comes up just about as high, but a little less each time, and you can you can shoot it. And I, and then you said to me, describe something that's beautiful. Describe what uh, define beautiful. I'd say it would be hard to define it, but I could I could point at something and say that's it right there. Look at that per or look look at that sunset. You'd say, or, or look at that house. Look, look at that. I can't define it in words, but just to look at it. And sometimes it's the same with the word glory, where you're saying, uh, if I could just point people at something and say, that's it, that's glory. And when I come to the Bible, uh, the Psalms tell us, Psalm 19 tells us the heavens, they declare the glory of God. Uh, unfortunately, where we live, we put so much natural light into the air, it's hard to see it anymore. You have to go almost to like a fake dome or you have to go to a museum. And this, this is what the heavens look like. And you're like, wow, this is amazing, you know. And you'd say, I wish I could see that for real. Well, you can't because we have too many lights around us. It's also that we read in the Psalms in the 70s there that, 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 that heaven itself is referred to as glory. But when we come to the book of Romans, a unique statement that Paul makes, he says, he says we took the glory of God and we exchanged it. We exchanged it. And you think we must have got something great in return. We must have offered it and got something tremendous. No, it says we exchanged it. And now we bow down to statues. We bow down to statues of animals or of trees or of other things that creep along the ground. Instead, we have exchanged the glory of God for something that can be tipped over by the human hand. And that's gone on all over the world. You think about that. You drive up and down the roads here. Men and women have exchanged the glory of God for, for most anything and most everything. And you say, well, that's just their choice, Dave. You say, no, because when we exchange God, it's not that we just believe in something else. It's that we'll believe in anything. Anything will do. When I come to my Bible, it's the book of Hebrews. It tells me this, that the Lord Jesus Christ was the brightness of the glory of God. When I come to the book of Acts, there is a man there, a martyr named Stephen, and as he's being stoned, he looks up into heaven, the heaven opened, and he sees the glory of God, and we only read him seeing one person, Jesus Christ. When you come to 2 Corinthians 4, it tells us there that the God that commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the knowledge of the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You can argue with me, but the Bible tells me glory may be hard to define, but it is not a what, it is a who. It is not a what, it is a who. And it tells me this, all have sinned, no difference. They've fallen short of the glory of God. They've fallen short of God's standard. God's standard was not measured in meters, nor was it measured in dollar bills. God's standard was not measured in devotion that could be seen uh, by you walking somewhere or by you praying something or by you, as it were, memorizing or attesting or anything. God's glory is not measured in what we do. It is measured in a man, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that. And you'd say, is there anything that's unique about that? Because Dave, that doesn't sit well with me. That's, that's something that's antagonistic to me. 
You may, you may look at this message as antagonistic the rest of your life. You may see it as something that, that is as aggravating and as repulsive as, as could be, as the weather could have been today. But it is only this book that tells me that the one who was God's standard died for sinners. Never do you find that in any of world's history. You take the standard bearer for anything, for any industry, for any country, for any religious institution, and never do you find them dying for the filth of the same industry. We name our streets and our towns after U.S. soldiers. We do not name them after ISIS members. And yet God's son died for his enemies. The standard bearer died for sinners. And you'd say, what a standard. You'd say, we missed the mark, and he hit the mark. You say, how do you know that? Because he has marks in his hands and in his feet, because this was the man who was crucified at Calvary. And you'd say, why was he there? Why was he crucified? It's a, a fact of history. And we're left to wonder, why was the man who had no sin, who did no sin, who knew no sin, why was he there dying for sinners? The Bible goes on to say that he might justify us freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. That word justified, difficult, difficult word. You'd say, I'm just not sure. I'm not confident how, how to go about it. Uh, what does it mean? I've heard people, all these different definitions, and it means something significant because it's used over and over and over again in our Bible. It's a, it's a term that they draw out from the legal system. And I was thinking of ways to illustrate justified because we always say, Dave, I, I'm going to be good enough to get to heaven. I want to be good enough. And I always ask people, do innocent people get to heaven? Do, 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 do innocent people get to glory? Do they, do they get, are, are, is that what it takes? I read recently that felons, felons in our state and in other states, they're not allowed certain rights. They're not allowed to vote. They're not allowed to bear public office. That was a surprise to me because I wouldn't have known that by the people who are in a public office. But felons, you say, no, not allowed to vote, not allowed to be in public office. They're, they're not allowed to buy a firearm. I was glad about all these things. I'm reading the list and I'm going, well, that's good. I agree with that. Then I come across the strangest of all things. It said they're not allowed to be barbers. You'd say, who come up with that one? Of all the jobs, you know, I guess felons can work with me. And I'm not a, and you can say, maybe they could be my accountant. Maybe they could, they could be, uh, I don't know, they could be a, 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 the person who checks me out at the grocery store, but they're not allowed to be barbers. And I thought, I guess it's maybe scissors, buzzers, I don't know. Who's really in that risk of getting a bad haircut? But you know what I, I thought about? I said, I should really go. I got a haircut today. If you were here yesterday, you'd know that. But I, thought, I was thinking about that in the barbershop today. I could just walk into the barbershop today, and actually one guy took a break, and, and I could say to the person, listen, I'll cut your hair because I'm not a felon. It's, it's just, I, listen, you can trust me because I'm not a felon. They'd say, no, no, actually, not only do you need to not have something, but you need to have something. You see that little license on the wall? that all three of these guys have, it says that they are licensed by the state of New Jersey to do just this, to cut hair. Not only do they not have a felon status, but they actually have a license. The word justified, when Christ saves a soul, when the one who was the standard, God's perfect standard, when he died for sinners, you know what he does for people? 
He takes people who were wicked, ungodly, destitute. He takes them from the negative side. And if all he did was bring them back to zero, there wouldn't be a single soul in heaven. But you know what he does? He brings them past zero and he brings them right into the positive. He gives them God's good. And so I say to you, Innocent people have no chance of being in heaven. They have as much chance as guilty people. It's only people who have been given God's good. That's what this word justified means. And you say, how do I get that? It says we're justified freely without a cause. Nothing in me. I didn't give God one single reason. I've been on this earth for 34 years. I have accumulated zero reasons why he should save me, why he should justify me. If I'm spared by the grace of God to be here 35 more years, I will accumulate zero reasons. When I die at whatever age I die at, I will have in total zero reasons why the God of heaven should have ever forgiven a single one of my sins or done anything in order to save me. And yet he did. He did it freely. Why? Because of grace. Grace says you cannot deserve this, but God will give it to you. And you say, how? Because of the redemption, because of the price that has been paid, redemption, to redeem something. We use that term. We go to stores, we redeem things. We, we, we offer something to buy them back and to be redeemed, to be purchased with what? Not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so I take these verses as a whole. And I offer them to you because the God of heaven has declared that he's in the business of justifying people because he gave his son. The God of heaven has given his son, Jesus Christ, to a cross at Calvary, and he's able to save you because of what took place there. And you say, I don't, I, don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. And, and you wouldn't be the first. But the unique thing about this gospel message is that I didn't have to wonder who was going to come into this tent tonight. It didn't matter. It didn't matter where you were born, your background. It didn't matter. I could have had a room full of imams tonight. I could have had a room full of rabbis. I could have had a room full of gurus. I could have had a room full of, you name the religion. You name the culture. You name even the past. I could have had a room full of convicts. You know, it wouldn't have mattered because God says no difference. In our hearts, we know that. You'd have to admit I'm just as bad as the next guy. I know that. I haven't been here long. I know that the same problem that I see in people on television, and I say, I can't believe that guy did that. I know at the end of the day, the same thing's in me. You say, oh, I, that's just, you're just, you're just stating that because you're up there. Listen, I'm stating it to all of you. I, who, who, who would disagree with that tonight? Who, who's going to disagree that when we get home, we're ashamed of the things that rule our hearts and our minds? We would do anything to keep a skeleton in our closets, but yet... It's a, it just, it seems like something we can push aside because we're going to achieve heaven. Just keep doing it the way that our parents did it, that our forefathers did it, that somehow we'll get it done too, and yet we don't even know where we're aiming. The Bible says there's no difference. We've all wronged. We've all sinned. We've all missed the mark. We've fallen short of God's one standard. And yet, by the amazing grace of God, there is not a single other faith, religion, creed, catechism, or any other thing on earth that would ever tell us of something so marvelous that the one man who met the standard died 
for those of us who never had an, even a chance of keeping it. And he died so that we could be forgiven. You say, uh, it's just uh, sentimental sentimental stuff that you read about. Uh, it's, it's proven in this document. The same document that verifies the identity of the man Jesus of Nazareth. It's the same document that tells me I can be justified without a cause because of the grace of God, because a price has been paid at Calvary to save my soul, to save myself from a lost eternity. And this has been done tonight, and it is offered freely to you without distinction and without regard for what you have done or what you will do. And yet it's offered only in time. We would ask you to consider these things tonight. There is a chance that you could put your trust in this. Because this works. It's not my works that save me. It's the work that was done at Calvary. And so we uh, would plead tonight with our audience to consider God's word, not so much our word, even when it hurts, even when it groups us with the rest of the 7 billion people in this world and says there is no difference for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And yet we can be justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus.